1: Just go to ramp.com slash easy ramp.com slash easy ramp.com slash easy cards issued by Sutton bank and Celtic bank members of DIC terms and conditions
0: apply. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over policing?
3: I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, "I'm as
1: mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore."
3: We must not allow ourselves to be intimidated. Our task is not only to win the battle, but to win the war. we're not
1: in Kansas anymore. Take a look at this country through her. If you really want to see something, you'll see the whole parade
3: of what man's carved out for himself after centuries of fighting. You're out of order.
4: You're out of order. The whole trial is out of order. You have meddled with the primal forces of
3: nature,
4: and you will atone.
1: Hey there.
2: I am your mad prophet of the airwaves, and welcome to Radio Free Canada, news notes and opinions from the underground. For Wednesday, December the 7th, a day that will live in infamy, ask your grandparents, Uh, in the year of our Lord 2022. 18 more sleeps, Declan. And then you run downstairs at 4.30 in the morning and tear into your presence. Merry Christmas, everyone. Declan's feeling under the weather today. Poor little guy. I uh, I mentioned yesterday that our our staff Christmas party, get well, Declan, because it's coming up. Our staff Christmas party happening this weekend at an undisclosed location, deep in an underground bunker. It's like ancient Roman times. Christmas has been forced underground. Well, we're not there yet. Yet. Uh, But I am looking forward to sharing some Christmas and Hanukkah cheer with my colleagues here at Saga 960. And I'm looking forward, especially to taking some time off. The Richard Serrett show will be off for two weeks over Christmas and New Year's. So I hope you'll tune in to the best of the Richard Serrett show over the holidays. I'm giving you a fair warning. My last show of 2022 will be Friday, December the 23rd. Right, Jacob? Do I have that correct? Yes. And then I'll be back Monday, January 9th with my first live show of 2023. But... uh You know, don't just dismiss the best ofs. They're worth listening a second and a third time, like a good book. Sometimes you have to reread the chapters. It's so nuanced and layered. I've got layers. I'm like an onion. Um, I don't know if Ron DeSantis is going to run for president in 2024. If he does... I mean, I don't know if he can beat Donald Trump for the Republican nomination, but I'd be I'd be very happy to see Trump run again. But I would be equally delighted if Florida Governor Ron DeSantis were to run for president. And I say this as a Canadian because I have lots of friends and family in the United States. And and so I am heavily invested emotionally in that country. But I wish we had a leader. I keep saying this. At the uh, risk of sounding like a broken record. I wish we had a leader like Ron DeSantis in his country. I think Alberta Premier Danielle Smith is uh, probably the closest. It's early in the game, but she's saying all the right things, doing some of the right things. I think Max Bernier would be that type of leader, but it's going to be very difficult for him to win a seat or for the People's Party to elect a significant number of seats in parliament in the foreseeable future. Sorry, it's just the way it is. Unfortunately, Max and the PPC, uh, or unfortunately for them, for Max and the PPC conservative leader, Pierre Polyev has stolen their thunder. Uh, and to be perfectly honest, and this pains me to say it, it's very worrisome as well. Uh, I'm not at all confident that Pierre Polyev and the conservatives can beat Trudeau and the liberals in the next election, which is widely expected in the spring. Trudeau has enough cultish followers and low information voters to, In Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver, who are still, hard to believe, but hypnotized by his hair and his socks. But he has enough of those types of voters in Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver to win. That's all he needs. Anyway, but I digress. Back to Ron Ron DeSantis. As I was saying, I wish we had a leader like him. He's not afraid to go after Disney. He's not afraid to go after BlackRock. He divested $2 billion from BlackRock because of his anti woke investment rule. Florida's chief financial officer, Jimmy Petronas, announced last week that the state was pulling about $2 billion in investments from asset management company BlackRock, largest asset management company in the world. Huge influence. Huge. Um, anyway, they're pulling $2 billion from. BlackRock, due to the asset managers strengthening environment, social governance standards, ESG. This is where the great reset meets the road. ESG, folks. The state's custody bank will be freezing $1.43 billion in long-term securities currently with BlackRock and remove the company as manager of about $600 million of short-term overnight investments. The state's treasury intends to reallocate the assets to another managers at the start to another, to other managers at the start of 2023. While Florida's divestment will hardly be felt by BlackRock with its $8 trillion in assets, the move highlights the growing backlash against ESG investing with many Republican leaders like Florida's DeSantis saying it's, it's putting politics over investor interests, which is so true. In January, BlackRock CEO Larry Fink What an appropriate name. Larry Fink uh, released an open letter where he discussed the company's support for stakeholder capitalism. Does that sound familiar? That's the Great Reset, folks. Where the company becomes more conscious about choosing clients that create value for and be valued by its full range of stakeholders. Stakeholder capitalism is not about politics. It's not about a social or ideological agenda. It's not woke, Fink wrote. I should say Fink lied. It's capitalism driven by mutually beneficial relationships between you and the employees, customers, suppliers, and communities. Your company relies on to prosper. This is the power of capitalism, he continued, to spread manure. Uh, But Florida's Treasury Division, which echoes Governor Ron DeSantis, who in August pushed a resolution calling for the state to halt its ESG investments because he believed it peddled what he calls ideological agenda. He called BlackRock's preference for ESG undemocratic. So true, so true. And we need to do this in Canada. We need our governments to immediately, immediately divest from any bank or financial institution or corporation that embraces this ESG nonsense. It's worse than nonsense. It's destructive. But of course, that that, that won't happen in Canada. Maybe Alberta. Maybe uh, but here's another reason I'm applauding Florida Governor Ron DeSantis right now. Have a listen to
3: this.
5: Uh, things that people are trying to do and focus on the evidence. And so, you know, we are going to work uh, to hold uh, these uh, manufacturers accountable for this mRNA because they said there was no side effects. And we know that there have been a lot. And so we did a study in Florida and you saw an 86 percent increase in cardiac related activity uh, from people 18 to 39. From mRNA shots. And so we're going to be doing some stuff uh, to bring accountability there because I think it's just something
2: where. <laughs> Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. He said, we are going to work to hold these pharmaceutical companies accountable for the mRNA shots. They said there were no side effects. And we know that there have been a lot. Do you imagine any of our leaders up here? Saying something like that, not a chance, not a chance. This is leadership. This is a governor, a leader, a leader who actually is looking out for his people. And what do we have here? We have a radical left wing premier. Who surrounds himself with lobbyists who do business with big pharma, and he continues to promote the vaccine, even for small children. Our crime minister continues to push the vaccine every chance he gets. Thankfully, people have stopped listening. It's not working. Millions of doses are going in the trash where they belong. You know, my colleague, Mark Petroni, who is uh, living in self-imposed exile down in Florida right now. If you're listening, you were so smart to get out, Mark. Enjoy the free state of Florida. All right. Here's what we have uh, for you today on uh, today's program. Woke Silliness is turning Ontario public schools into a joke. So says Michael Zweigstra. He's uh, the deputy mayor of Steinbach, Manitoba, and a public high school teacher and a strong proponent of raising academic standards. And uh, he's also a senior fellow with the Frontier Center for Public Policy. He'll be here last order of business in hour two to discuss. Global news reporter Rachel Gilmore crying victim that she and other mainstream media reporters, you know, the ones who were bought and paid for by the Trudeau government. She's complaining that she and others are being harassed on social media. Mean tweets. Meanwhile, she's being accused of helping to spread doxed information about a pro-freedom indigenous woman. Wyatt Claypool from the National Telegraph will be here in hour two with that story. Canada's Auditor General says $4.6 billion in federal government overpayments during the pandemic is just the tip of the iceberg. What, the federal liberals waste taxpayer money? I'm shocked. Shocked, I say. Franco Terrazano, federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, will be here with that one, also in hour two. Coming up this hour, Wednesdays, we push back against the dangerous death cult of climate change. Tony Heller, the founder of RealClimateScience.com, will be here. Remember, we are the carbon they want to eliminate. Never forget that. But first, Ontario school boards have given millions of dollars in taxpayer dollars to solicit the gender identification of young children. Tamara Ugolini from Rebel News is next. The Richard Serrett Show off and running for Wednesday, December the 7th. Facta non verba
4: We're back as the Richard Serrett Show Continues on News Talk Saga 960 AM
2: Welcome back, hey just a reminder The uh, Mississauga Steelheads are heading Down the uh, QEA The QEW The QEW, are we going to rename that? Anyway, uh, they're going to Take on the Hamilton Bulldogs Tonight, Matt Cullen and Mike Karafalitis. We'll be calling all the action tonight starting at 7 p.m. only on Saga 960 a.m. Raise your hand if you remember our radical progressive premier and his party campaigning on this issue, that they were going to go out and give millions of dollars from your pocket to school boards across the province so that they could ask young school children inappropriate sexual questions. Do you remember them campaigning on that? I don't. I don't remember them saying they were going to do this, but they are. Tamara Ugolini is a human rights activist turned journalist and a senior editor with Rebel News. Tamara, welcome back. How are you? Hi, Richard. I'm well. Thanks. And how are you doing today? Well, uh, I'm incensed, actually. What else is new? Uh, Every day, it's it's something else with this uh, radical progressive government so, uh, tell us about this initiative, uh, this identity-based census, and they're spending hard-earned taxpayer money to give to these school boards to do what I think is just a despicable thing.
6: Right. So, this came to me as a rebel news journalist through our tips line, and so often we receive tips from the community in terms of you know what, what's happening on the ground in various sectors of of our uh, progressive apparently a progressively conservative Ontario. So this particular tip came to me from the Rainbow District School Board, which is the largest school board in North America. And throughout the first week of October, they were conducting what was called a gender identity census and, or sorry, an identity-based census. And this asked, you know, the usual questions of students, what was your first language spoken at home and your background and the... um, the income earnings of your parents and did they work full time and their education levels. And then we got into some really odd questions about how the children, and these were children, again, um, if you watch my report, as young as grade four, so arguably eight, nine-year-olds up until grade eight, and then the high schoolers in nine to 12 had a similar census. And so the questionnaire got into asking the information of these students as young as age eight or nine, their sexual orientation and their gender identity. Um, And so this came to my attention. And I originally reported on this in the by the middle of October, um, after I had time to go through the survey itself, and then I filed an access to information request. So we do that Often, uh, I think Rebel News is one of the largest, the the independent media company who files the most access to information requests with various levels of government. And we could do that through um, a special website called rebelinvestigates.com. And so when I received this access to information request back, I discovered that the provincial government, the Doug Ford alleged conservatives were funding millions. They funneled millions of taxpayer dollars into this particular project. So in total, there's approximately 72 school boards in Ontario. And depending on the level of data collection that pre-existed in the board, they were given either 35000 or fifty five thousand. So, if you take those numbers and times it by seventy two, that's anywhere from two point five to three point nine million dollars that taxpayers paid into essentially a gender census survey that collected and solicited the sexual orientation and uh, gender identities of school age children as young as eight and nine.
2: Yeah, for the love of God! I mean, you know. On one on the one hand, it's not the money. Let's face it. Two and a half, three million dollars. Yes, it's that's taxpayer money. It's not peanuts. But I mean, they burn through that, you know, every 10 minutes. Um, The point that they are using that money and then turning around and and using it to survey these innocent minds and asking them totally inappropriate questions about they don't even know what gender identity means for crying out loud. Did 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 they camp I mean I I, I began the, the segment saying that I don't remember them campaigning on this. Did they ever mention anything about this during the last campaign?
6: Not that I heard of, and we follow the political sphere quite closely. Um, but it's unsurprising coming from this same government that this is what we're faced with. I mean, especially in wake of unprecedented Unprecedented inflation. I mean, there are Canadians out there and parents with school-aged children who are struggling to pack healthy, wholesome lunches for their children because they simply cannot afford fresh food anymore with the with the rising cost of living and the cost of groceries. And yet our government is out there, you know, throwing away millions to conduct an identity-based census on these young school-aged children and arguably many of these parents are not even informed that this is happening at their schools. Um, I hear from, from various people having children in the school system myself, you know, for instance, in my daughter's class, I was the only parent out of all of those children to send back the refusal form. And then the children in the class are wondering, well, why does she get to sit out from this survey? And I don't want to do it either. But the teacher went ahead and, and made all of the children uh, partake in this survey unless their parents, which apparently there was only myself, one, uh, sent back the refusal form. So this was sold as per the school board's own information as a voluntary census. But many parents just can't keep up. You know, they're focused on the rat race and they don't know that these things are happening within their schools, within the school board themselves. And so their children are being thrust into completing census such as these, which, I mean, really, arguably... Is, is information that a groomer would be soliciting from yes, exactly. children to, to determine, you know, how vulnerable is this ch- child? Are their parents working full time? What's the, their yearly income? What's their level of education? Are the parents involved? Are they not? We're seeing more and more that unfortunately parents haven't been involved to date and maybe they need to become more aware of what is happening in the school system. And I mean, the the angle that I took in this report was just how much money is being funneled into this woke ideology when we're facing real cost of living issues in Ontario that this is just being squandered away.
2: Yes, totally tone deaf. Uh, Tamara, we'll take a quick time out, come back and continue to discuss Tamara Ugalini, human rights activist, journalist, senior editor with Rebel News, rebelnews.com. Support independent media. Back with more of our conversation with government-sponsored grooming going on in our public schools. Right after these.
4: Let's get back at it on News Talk Saga 960 AM. It's the Richard Serra Show.
2: Mayor Ugolini from Rebel News is with us, and we're talking about a um, provincial government initiative spending two and a half to almost four million dollars in that range to school boards, seventy-two school boards across Ontario, so that the schools can conduct. They're supposed to be voluntary survey surveys, but there's some serious question about whether they're voluntary. Uh, In which children as young as eight, basically grade four, eight and nine year olds are being asked to disclose their gender identity and sexual orientation. I kid you not. It's called an identity based census.
0: Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and overpolicing? is running out this message is paid for by lines for fair and equitable policy
2: and um again i mean I, tamara i would expect something like this this type of nonsense from the previous regime uh of um kathleen Wynne, uh or maybe even you know from the crazy ndp the crazy marxist leninist ndp but not from a well i know better now but not from a uh A party that calls itself the progressive conservative party. I mean, there's nothing conservative about them. Uh, Now, this directive comes from someone named Patrick Case. Uh, He's the assistant deputy minister and education equity secretariat. I never knew we had such a, a thing. An education equity secretariat. Is this a new position?
6: Yeah, you know, it's funny, the more you dig into all of these bureaucrats, you find out just how truly bloated the bureaucracy is. And um, what I'd like to mention about Patrick Case is I looked him up on the sunshine list, and he makes a cushy, you know, $208,000 per year. And so when the, the provincial government's funneling out taxpayer dollars to fund millions Uh, to collect and solicit the gender identity and sexual preferences of our young school-aged children. These are the kinds of people that really don't notice the hit to the pocketbooks that Ontarians are facing with the unprecedented inflation, cost of living, and as I mentioned before the ad break, the cost of of food alone. And as parents struggle just to pack healthy, wholesome lunches for their children, that's a huge concern. And, And now they have to be concerned that The school boards are asking these really inappropriate questions of their young school-age children. Again, eight and nine-year-olds, I don't think that they should have any inkling as to what they prefer sexually. And if they do, then I would hope that um, Child, Child Protective Services were being called to investigate because that is absolutely outrageous question to ask of a grade four student and arguably grades four through eight and even grades nine and and upwards. I mean, the fact that this is being solicited at school and often unbeknownst to the parents is extremely concerning as a parent myself with uh, children in the school system.
2: Right. I I mean, I have 16 year old twin boys, but I'm trying to imagine what I would do. I can't if they came home and they were eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 years old. And they were asked to fill out or they told me that they were being asked to fill out a form. And they, you know, Daddy, what is heterosexual mean? What does lesbian mean? What is bisexual mean? Am I two spirited? Am I queer questioning? Am I pansexual? That is that is just beyond abhorrent, appalling, appalling to ask an eight year old if they're pansexual. I'm not even sure I know what that means, Tamara. I don't know what yeah. I, I don't even I think I want to know what that means.
6: Right. And the and the odd thing was, is apparently I couldn't access this as someone who wasn't actually filling out the survey itself. But apparently there was to be definitions provided as, you know, a little information um, tab that you could click to find the definitions of these various things. You know, lesbian, gay, bisexual, two spirit, queer questioning, asexual, pansexual. And they also had the option there to choose any or all that applied. So this is just utter chaos and confusion. I mean, you could you could literally click all of them and um, it lends further as well. You know, how is this data actually being collected who's using it where does it go it says it's voluntary and that you know there will never be a breach and and the personal identities will be held within the database but we know that that is you know there's always a potential for a hacker or this to get into the hands of the wrong people and is it kept strictly within the school is it the school board is it the ontario ministry I mean, who ends up with this data in their hands at the end of the day and, and how are they using it and, and why? I mean, millions of dollars, as I've already reiterated, in unprecedented inflation just seems like such a squandering and waste of taxpayer dollars and unbeknownst to many of us. Right.
2: Yeah, exactly. And if you know, if I found out someone in the schoolyard was asking my child this that I didn't know, even if I knew them, never mind. I didn't know if even if I knew them, I punched them in the face. I throttled them. And yet we have a government funding this inside the schools. It's absolutely appalling. Tamara, thank you so much for bringing this to our attention. Great work as always.
6: Thank
2: you. Tamara Ugolini, human rights activist turned journalist, senior editor with Rebel News, rebelnews.com. When we come back, the cult of climate change. Stay with us.
4: You're listening to The Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga, 960 AM. (laughs)
3: the cult of climate change on the richard sarich show
2: all right welcome back we're uh, anxiously awaiting the arrival of tony heller the founder of RealClimateScience.com. Not sure what happened with Tony. Perhaps we got our wires crossed, but uh, we hope all is well with Tony. In the meantime, you know the um, the London Mirror? Is it called the London Daily Mirror? Anyway, it's a uh, British newspaper of some renowned, or was anyway, seems to be in decline. As so many print newspapers are. I wonder why. Uh, but um, maybe they should get a big gambling license, like the uh, Toronto, the newspaper whose name I will not utter because of their disgraceful behavior during uh, the pandemic. However, I digress. So the uh, the London Mirror, listen to this. This this may may explain why their readership is in rapid decline. Peddling this kind of nonsense. The Mirror makes ludicrous claim. They're making this ludicrous claim uh, that large parts of England will be underwater by 2100. It's a piece about it. uh, The uh, Chris Morrison writing. What's up with that? It's called the uh, website. The Great Climate Flood Sting has hooked another big media fish. Recently, the Mirror informed its bewildered if rapidly vanishing readers that much of London could be gone within 80 years. While large areas along the Humber, not the Humber here, the Humber in England, and the Midlands could also disappear, disappear beneath the waves. The Mirror reporter, Sam Elliott Gibbs, notes the existence of, quote, terrifying new maps of the UK that predict towns and cities will be vanishing into the sea. Regular readers of The Daily Skeptic might already be observing the handiwork of Climate Central, a green billionaire-backed activist operation that specializes in custom-made flood catastrophes usually aimed at local media. Elliot Gibbs informs his readers that the situation is bleak for many along the Humber, including Hull, as the area becomes totally flooded with a large portion of the Midlands submerged as well. The mirror prints a terrifying map showing water lapping Uh, Peterborough. These are all names we know in Ontario, but again, this is the UK. The current annual rate of sea level rise is estimated by the US Weather Service. uh, And this is the um, National Ocean and Atmospheric Agency Laboratory for Satellite Altimetry to be 3.1 millimeters with a 13% margin of error, 3.1 millimeters. Hull is four meters above sea level, so at the current rise, it would take 1,290 years to be totally flooded. At eight meters above sea level, the current rise would leave Peterborough free of water for three millennia, 3,000 years. These ludicrous forecasts based partly on improbably high temperature increases assume a sea level rise over 30 times faster than it is now. Anyway, this is the kind of garbage that's being peddled by the mainstream media because they are in league With the WEF, they sing directly from their hymn book. BlackRock, they're on board with all of this as well. That's part of their ESG. So on the one hand, we have the media, government agencies peddling this nonsense, frightening our children, leaving them with nothing but despair and hopelessness. And then the next minute, they're grooming them. Asking them to fill out surveys. Nine-year-olds, fill out a survey. Are you two-spirited? Are you pansexual? Are you kidding me? All right. Uh, it doesn't look like our dear friend Tony Heller is going to be with us, so I'll tell you what we'll do. We have a few minutes here, and next segment, we'll open up the phone lines, 289-275-9600, 289 275 9,600, 9, We can talk about the story I just discussed with Rebel News reporter Tamara Ugolini, if you'd like. This is the survey that went around to all 72 school boards across Ontario, paid by you, taxpayer money, anywhere from two and a half to almost four million dollars of taxpayer money, doled out to these woke school boards, running our public schools into the ground across the province. And uh, this money was used to conduct what is supposed to be or supposed to have been a voluntary survey for children as young as, well, uh, uh, fourth graders, asking them these totally inappropriate questions about gender identity and um, their their sexual, uh, are, are you straight, are you gay, are you bisexual, are you pansexual, are you twin-spirited? Are you lesbian? Unbelievable. 289-275-9600. 289 275 When we come back, I have another story courtesy of the uh, cult of climate change. The Richard Serrett Show right here on Saga 960 continues right after these.
4: Back to the conversation on the Richard Serrett Show. News Talk. Saga 960 AM.
2: All right, this is a part two of our Cult of Climate Change segment that uh, we discuss every Wednesday. Tony Heller not here, so I am soldiering on in his absence. Uh, before I get back to that, just another reminder that the uh, Steelheads are heading down the QEW to uh, take on the Hamilton Bulldogs tonight. Matt Cullen and Mike Caraphilitis will be calling all the action tonight starting at 7 p.m. only on Saga 960. Mike Caraphilitis.com. Um, uh, is he Greek? I ask, you know, because my I, I married a Greek and the name sounds Greek. You know, the Greeks invented hockey. You ask any Greek, <laughs> they will tell you that. Hockey, that's a Greek word. <laughs> anyway, I, I hope I can meet uh, Mike Garofalitis at the, uh, at the Christmas party. All right. And of course, Matt Cullen. I I've met Matt. All right. Let's get back to, uh. The cult of climate change. So, and you can weigh in at any time and get on board and the number to call 289-275-9600 289-275-9600 So, I keep talking about electric vehicles and what a scam, an utter scam th- this is. And of course uh, Premier Tommy Boy and Sox Trudeau showed up in Ingersoll at the GM plant and they're converting all of their production to uh, electric vehicles. Nobody wants them. Nobody wants them. Sales are in the single digits in terms of a percentage, the top five best-selling vehicles remain internal combustion engines, trucks and SUVs. That's what we want. That's what we want. Not useless electric vehicles. That cost the cre- uh, it costs uh, more energy. It takes more energy to create them, to build them, to make them than it does a gas powered vehicle. You have to drive the thing a hundred thousand kilometers before it actually makes up for that in terms of CO two emissions. A hundred thousand kilometers. You think you've seen these little tin can electric vehicles? Do you actually think they're gonna they're going to be on the road for 100,000 kilometers? If they are, do you think the battery's going to last that long? What do you think happens to the battery? Do you know how expensive those are to to, uh, to replace? And how difficult they are to dispose of? Anyway, so the whole point of electric vehicles is control. Because once you are forced into an electric vehicle. It's easier to lock you down and keep you at home and to prevent you from from traveling. It's about taking away your mobility. So here's a perfect example. In Switzerland, they are now telling people because of energy shortages, power shortages, I mean, the same people that are hyping... Electric cars, telling everyone to buy them, to save the planet. Right? So now the EU recently announced they would ban the sale of uh, new fossil cars, uh, fossil fuel cars, beginning in 2035. Same here in Canada. Britain has gone even further. They're banning um, fossil fuel cars beginning in 2030. Seven years away. Pushing everybody, switch over to your electric car. That's not going to happen. The power grid can't handle it. There aren't enough batteries to go around to be able to make all those new electric cars. There's not enough lithium. There's not enough cobalt for one round of batteries. Never mind two. So anyway, here's the point. Now Switzerland is planning on banning people from driving their electric cars because of the energy shortage. These are crisis measures. They're even talking about uh, streaming services like Netflix having to reduce the resolution of videos and use of game consoles being banned in Switzerland. <laughs> That's how bad the energy crisis is. So uh, and, and in uh, they have different um, zones in Switzerland. So if you happen to live in a zone with a higher level of restriction. Hot water will be turned off in public bathrooms. Christmas lights will be turned off. They'll be closing all leisure businesses and sports matches and concerts will be banned. But then there's the battery problem. Battery shortages. And uh, they're talking about, again, preventing people from plugging in their electric cars because of this energy shortage. It's particularly bad in Switzerland. You know in uh, in Europe there are four hundred million cars, four hundred million cars, and the EU is now banning new fossil fuel cars by 2035 So they think they're going to switch four hundred million cars switched over to electric. So if you had four hundred million electric cars, each with a battery pack of there um, are a hundred kilowatts, that's what you need if you want something with a decent range. Imagine 400 million cars getting charged fully at least once a week. They need 40,000 gigawatt hours of electricity every week. 40,000 gigawatt hours. So a Swedish nuclear power plant produces around 27,000 gigawatt hours of electricity per year. So this would be several reactors combined. Even that output, not enough to power all of our electric cars just for one week. It's not going to happen. It's not feasible. It's a pipe dream. But they want to get you into an electric car so that they can tell you, sorry, rolling blackouts. We don't have enough energy. You can't plug in your car. You can't go anywhere. The biggest scam ever. And there was Premier Tommy Boy. And that creepy grifter, his best pal, Crime Minister Sox Trudeau, the trust fund brat, and the folks at GM congratulating themselves, falling all over themselves, congratulating themselves because GM is converting to electric vehicles. Good luck with that. Good luck with that. All right. Uh, Do I have time for this? This is um, Dr. Delglish. Dr. Delglish is, uh, Dr. Angus Delglish is a professor of oncology at St. George's University of London, pretty renowned oncologist, professor. Here he is talking about what he's seeing in patients with regards to boosters and cancer. What we're seeing now is people are okay until they have boosters. That's what i am seeing with my own eyes. It's the it's boosters that people are then getting a relapse of their melanoma or a, a B-cell. a lot of people have low-grade B-cell malignancy, uh, chronic leukemia, very low-grade lymphoma. So it, perhaps it's just revealing these diagnoses to the people there. But again, we've got a logic to it. If it it's suppressing the innate immune response, that is the immune response we know contains melanoma and B cell limbs. So
5: it all fits there. For I believe we have a duty to bring this to everybody's attention.
2: So again, here we have a professor of oncology talking about his patients who had cancer that was stabilized or was in remission, and as soon as they got the booster, he's seeing this cancer get very aggressive and spread. And he's attributing it, he is attributing it to the booster. Because it's suppressing the immune system that keeps these cancers in check. That's not, those aren't my words. This is a a renowned oncologist from the United Kingdom.
0: Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing?
2: All right, hour two coming up. We'll speak with Franco Terrazano, federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, Canada's auditor general, saying this $4.6 billion in COVID-19 overpayments is just the tip of the iceberg. We'll also uh, talk with Wyatt Claypool from the National Telegraph, Global News, uh, Rachel Gilmore being accused of helping to spread doxxed information about a pro-freedom indigenous woman. We'll talk about that. And uh, also, Michael Zwegstra, who is a high school teacher, strong proponent of raising academic standards, and a senior fellow with the Frontier Center for Public Policy, says Ontario public schools are a joke because of all this woke silliness. You got that right. All right. Hour two awaits. Don't go away. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Seeking truth and justice in a battleground of deception and corruption, this is The Richard Serrett Show.
3: I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell... I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not gonna take this anymore! We must not allow ourselves to be intimidated. Our task is not only to win the battle, but to win the war. I'm
1: not we're not in Kansas anymore. Take a look at this country through her eyes if you really want to see something. You'll see the
5: whole parade of what man's carved out for himself after centuries of fighting. You're out of order! You're-
2: and you will welcome to hour two of the richard Serrett show if you missed hour one you missed a lot but don't despair still plenty of great programming coming your way including michael swagstra he uh, he wears a lot of hats michael swagstra does he's um uh, Manitoba public high school teacher he's a senior fellow at the Frontier Center for Public Policy author of A Sage on the Stage Common Sense Reflections on Teaching and Learning and he just penned a uh, a column for the Epoch Times titled Woke Silliness Turning Ontario Public Schools into a Joke Ain't that the truth? Ain't that the truth? Unfortunately it's not a joke. But I guess you have to laugh, otherwise you'd cry. Uh, Wyatt Claypool will be here from the National Telegraph. You know, last Wednesday, we had the Monk debate, the second of two. They do two a year at Roy Thompson Hall. They bring in some heavy hitters, I must say. And um, the last one on Wednesday of last week, the resolution was, don't trust the mainstream media. Be it resolved. Don't trust the mainstream media. And arguing in in favor of the resolution not to trust the mainstream media was uh, Douglas Murray, who's a, a British political commentator, and he's an author. You may be familiar with his book, The Madness of Crowds. You should get him on the program. I like the cut of his jib, as they say. Uh, anyway, at the, around the same time or maybe a few days later, Oh, incidentally, the the, uh, the 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 pro-resolution side just totally destroyed, totally wiped the floor with the other people trying to defend the lamestream media. And the audience voted before the debate. Most voted that they trusted the mainstream media after, after the debate, after they heard the evidence and the truth and the arguments. Totally changed their mind. So it was a wild swing. Like, uh, I think nearly 70% ended up saying, Yeah, we don't trust the mainstream media. Anyway, a few days later, some people with the lamestream media, I think up at Carlton University, they sponsored this conference about how poor journalists in the mainstream media, you know, the the ones that are bought and paid for by the liberal government, how they're under siege, how they're receiving mean tweets on social media. Oh, pity them, poor them. And uh, that was attended by the likes of global news, Rachel Gilmore. And uh, I mean, she, she, she has been harassed, I guess, on Twitter. And that's not, I don't condone that. Uh, Certainly not for anybody, but uh, Wyatt Claypool will be here from the national telegraph and um, Gilmore apparently is being accused of helping to spread doxed information about a pro freedom indigenous woman. So we'll talk to Wyatt about that. All right. So our um, auditor general, what, who is uh, our Auditor General? Uh, uh, let's see here. Anyway, I, I like her. I'm not, I can't, oh, uh, Karen Hogan. She's doing a great job. She just found out, going through the books, $4.6 billion, the federal liberals doled out in overpayments during the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, COVID-19 payments to ineligible recipients And this, she says, is just the tip of the iceberg. Franco Terrazano is the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, and he's here with the gory details. Franco,
5: how are you? I'm doing well, but let me just emphasize, very, very tip of the iceberg, that $4.6 billion. That $4.6 billion of overpayments to ineligible people, that is what has already been confirmed. We know that we know that for sure, but she identified over twenty-seven billion, additionally, in suspicious payments. So we're looking at at least at least thirty-two billion dollars in, sus- in suspicious payments or ineligible payments that were made on all these COVID nineteen subsidies. Let me just put that into perspective: thirty-two billion dollars is enough to build thirty hospitals across Canada. Mm, wow. 30. Yikes. And let, and let me dive into some of these numbers here, because this will really boil your listeners blood. OK, so let's look at the SERB. right? Remember the SERB, uh, the, the main big subsidy that was being handed out to individuals here? Well, uh-huh. we gave or the government, I should say, gave one hundred and ninety thousand people, the SERB who had quit their job, didn't lose their job because of covid they decided to quit their job 190,000 people costing taxpayers 1.6 billion dollars in other it words they worse. were
2: not they were not eligible to receive serb because they voluntarily quit rather than you know they weren't laid off they quit
5: correct correct let's keep going cuz it gets even worse 1500 people the government gave serb to in jail in jail $6.1 million. 1,500 people in jail, jail, the government still gave them CERB, okay? 700, 700 people not living in Canada, $3.3 million. The government gave 400 people the CERB who were under the age of 15. Under the age of 15, still got CERB, $2.2 million. And this might be the craziest one of all. The government gave 391 dead people Serb, $1.2 million. OK, so all of these people the government was giving Serb to, it tells us one thing. The government didn't have these guardrails. The government made a mess of this. And now we have this big problem on our hands.
2: Wow. $32 billion at the very least. And that's just in one. You know, that's just in with with CERB payments. Who knows? Who knows what else? Uh, Auditor General Karen Hogan is going to uh, find as she continues to go through the uh, documents, I guess line by line. Thirty-two billion. But what stands out to me, uh, you also said that they could, with thirty-two billion dollars, basically they could cover the entire federal tax bill for the people in Saskatchewan for three years. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
5: yeah. Well, that's the thing, right? Let's not forget here: thirty-two billion dollars is something that could be used. Elsewhere, But I just want to clarify one thing, and I apologize, but the $32 billion was over all of the different COVID-19 subsidies. So also includes the wage subsidy. OK, and here's what else is crazy. Remember that wage subsidy that they were giving to businesses? Yes. Of course, so many gyms, so many restaurants uh, were forced to shut down because of government restrictions and lockdowns. So, So I understand and I feel so bad for so many of those businesses, those gym owners, those restaurants that had to – essentially deal with the government's restrictions but the auditor general has pointed out more than 15 billion dollars that was given to businesses that may not have even been eligible for the program that's according to the auditor general's report nearly over 15 billion dollars and of course i don't believe this was in the auditor general's report but this is something else we got to talk about and that's the political parties that helped themselves to the wage subsidy that was meant for struggling businesses, $3 million plus to political parties who shouldn't have taken the wage subsidy, but did anyways.
2: They get a wage. sub. are we talking about the provincial per vote subsidy or are we talking about a a federal subsidy? Explain what that is. On top
5: of that, on top of that. And I'm talking about the wage subsidy. We probably, you probably all remember it, right? The wage subsidy that was given to businesses, to help Mm -hmm. them cover some of their employees costs. Yes. Yes. That was a COVID-19 subsidy that was meant to help businesses keep as many of their workers as possible on the payroll. However, political parties, every single one of them in the house of commons, other than the block, helped themselves to the wage subsidy. That was really meant for the struggling businesses, right? People were worried. People were worried that businesses would, would shut down for good. I don't think there's too many people who are worried that political parties weren't getting enough tax dollars and that there weren't enough political attack ads.
2: Wow. That's, that's pretty brazen. Unbelievable. All right, Franco, this is uh, <laughs> more bad news, more bad news. Uh, you can read this article in the newsroom, Taxpayer uh, taxpayer.com taxpayer.com $4.6 billion. Just the tip of the iceberg on COVID-19 overpayments. According to the auditor general, but uh, more like $32 billion on suspicious COVID-19 payments. Franco Terrazano, keeping them honest. Thank you, my friend. Thanks for having me on tonight. Franco Terrazano, Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Wyatt Claypool from the National Telegraph is next. Stay
4: with us. Welcome back to The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk Saga 960 AM.
2: Global news reporter, Rachel Gilmore, very active on social media. She's uh, raised the ire of some, and she has her fans, I'm sure. Uh, and she's uh, she took part in a, uh, a conference, I believe, up at Car- Carleton University, not too long after the Monk debates, the, uh, the Monk debate, which uh, had as its resolution, don't trust the mainstream media. Uh, this little confab, though, up at Carleton University was a bunch of lamestream media journalists sitting around and whining and complaining um, that they are being subjected to um, mean tweets and uh, harassment on social media. And I don't, I I don't condone that. I don't condone harassing anyone on social media and I don't condone threatening journalists or anyone it's wrong. however, Global News Rachel Gilmore is being accused of helping to spread doxed information about a pro-freedom indigenous woman. Wyatt Claypool, senior contributor with the National Telegraph, is here with the story. Hey, Wyatt, how are you?
7: I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for having me on, Richard.
2: So, um, again, Gilmore, you know, talking about a lot of uh, the fact that they're the the um, they're receiving a lot of online hate and harassment. Meanwhile, What's going on with uh, with her and this um, pro freedom uh, indigenous woman? Set the stage for us. Yeah, and
7: just to, yeah, and just to start us off, like I, I'd be with you like that. Like I I think that most of what people like Rachel Gilmore whining about online is just the fact that they get criticism. I also don't condone people leaving vulgar comments or threats, but a lot of it tends to be non-serious, and I think she knows it. But with what happened with this girl on Twitter named Bratney, she's an anonymous Twitter account. She runs anonymous Twitter and anonymous Instagram, is that in a Facebook group, uh, like she mostly only interacts on Twitter, but in a Facebook group, she was just telling people that they should go onto Twitter and criticize Rachel Gilmore's journalism because Rachel Gilmore, because she works for Global News, has a lot of reach, and uh, Antifa account saw her doing this. I got, she wasn't saying go harass, just saying go and call her out for saying for lying. And so Antifa accounts basically doxxed this girl whose name is Brantney on Twitter, and they released all of her public and her private information. And then Rachel Gilmore screenshot it or quote tweeted and then put it out there. Bratney then called her out for it because she started getting harassed at her workplace. Like she's a single mother of three. And then so Gilmore then said, you mean this one? And then basically reposted it, kind of uh, taking another jab at her. And she's sort of trying to walk away now and say, well, that wasn't doxing. It's somehow false to say this is doxing because it's on her public Facebook page. But the whole point is that doxing is either taking someone's private information or trying or using information to identify someone online who wishes to not be.
2: Okay, so just, yeah, explain when you dock somebody, what kind of information are you revealing?
7: Yeah, you're revealing ways of being able to essentially find the person, contact the person when they do not want to be contacted. It's like how, th- this is kind of a silly thing about what Gail Moore saying and other people who are supporting what she and the Antifa accounts are doing, is that just because something's public doesn't mean you get to tie it to someone else. Everyone's license plates are, are public, uh, publicly viewable. But it's wrong to take photos of it and then identify it with a specific person. Bratney had a Facebook page with her real name on it, her workplace Ace, and all of a bunch of other personal details of her life, but she doesn't really post publicly on there. She was just in a private group and was just criticizing Rachel Gilmore's work, and that was deemed – good enough to basically shine a giant spotlight at it. And the spotlight is really what matters. If someone just sort of, said, if someone just sort of says into the void your personal information it doesn't ma- mean anything. But Gilmore spreading that doxed information and putting a spotlight on it basically saying this person's harassing me when Bratney never did. You are targeting them so that crazy people try and get them fired at work. Which is exactly what happened to Bratney. She luckily has her job still, but it didn't exactly you know help at the time when she might lose it and has three daughters that she still has to feed.
2: Right. And if I'm understanding, though, she also I mean, she was supporting uh, veteran James Topp, of course, we're, we're familiar with his story. He um, a veteran, Canadian veteran in the armed forces and basically marched from uh, British Columbia all the way to Ottawa, uh, didn't receive the kind of mainstream media attention that that he deserved. Uh, he was supporting, you know, uh, obviously, he was marching against the mandates. And I guess Bratney was very vocal in supporting him on her Facebook page. Is that the right? Is that, is that true?
7: Yeah. Cause it was in this Facebook group. That's, that's sorry. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for adding that in. Cause that's why they were saying to go and criticize Rachel Gilmore. Cause she's falsely smearing James top at the white supremacist. But then what Gilmore then did is that she falsely said that she, Bratney was harassing her. When Bratney's like, if you ever go, if people go and find her Twitter uh, profile, it's under like at the at brat world. Uh, literally she will tell people to do not say vulgar things, not threaten, uh, Rachel Gilmore and contem- condemned that type of behavior. But Rachel Gilmore basically implicated her and said, well, this is a white supremacist supporter. Uh, and again, she's like, she's an indigenous woman. She's like, Brad, he's not the type of person to play identity politics. But isn't it a little bit ironic that the mainstream media who cares all about identity doesn't exactly care about it when they want to smear someone?
2: Exactly. It doesn't count if you're on the wrong side uh, of the argument in in their mind. Uh, Wyatt Claypool is with a senior contributor with the National Telegraph, the dot com support independent media. Wyatt will take a quick time out, come back and continue to discuss uh, this accusation that Rachel Gilmore has helped spread doxed information about a pro-freedom indigenous woman. Back with more of The Richard Serrett Show in three minutes.
4: The Bull Session continues on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. Welcome back. Wyatt
2: Claypool is here from The National Telegraph, and we're talking about global news reporter Rachel Gilmore being accused of helping to dox a pro-freedom indigenous woman. And uh, this indigenous woman who goes by the name Brattany, or Britanni um, calling out Rachel Gilmore on Twitter for having quote facilitated harassment against her back when she was supporting anti-mandate veteran James Top. I guess she posted something about uh, James Top supporting James Top on her Facebook uh, page, and then Antifa, who apparently don't exist. It's all a figment of our imagination, but Antifa. Uh, gathered up some of her personal information, her place of work, her hometown, etc., and uh, posted that on Twitter, and then uh, Rachel Gilmore reposted it. So the accusation here is that Rachel Gilmore is taking part in the harassment of an indigenous, indigenous woman. Now, Wyatt, um, she also... Uh, Brittany also uh, posted a picture of her status card or Indian and Northern Affairs, Canada status card. Is that, did she do that because was there a point where maybe Rachel Gilmore, and I don't know this to be true. I'm asking whether she doubted, of, you know, whether that she, when she said she was indigenous woman, did she claim she wasn't or did she challenge her on that? Why did
0: not. She- Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing?
7: not that. It's that Rachel and some of the other people that she's been appearing on these sort of different anti hate panels with are always constantly talked about. Oh, the, like people were being harassed because we're women and we're women of color too. And it, it's like, well, why are you going after people? Clearly, that's something that you don't care about because you'll go after someone who is like an indigenous woman. It's stupid. But like Bratney, again, Bratney does not care about or Brittany. Maybe you're right about that. I'm actually not sure how to pronounce her name. But uh, like she, like, the thing is that she even says, "I don't care about identity politics." And at, some, at one point in the article, I just quoted her saying that, and since you are now wanting to play the victim, because that's what Rachel Gilmore does all the time, she says, I am going to play your game with you. You, Rachel, are a misogynistic, privileged, colonizing white supremacist who willingly allowed a Native woman to be harassed and uh, in the name of virtue signaling. And then she went on from there in kind of a bit of a tirade. But it's absolutely true. Every single... Sort of grandstanding thing that Rachel Gilmore says about people harassing her or people harassing other people, and usually the harassment, again, is just criticism, is exactly what she did to, to Britannia. But then there's another rub here, too, is that Rachel Gilmore, I, and others are all public individuals. Like you, Richard, Sarah, are a public individual. You are open to people's comments at you. You are like a public person. You like represent yourself as your real name and everything like that. Uh, Britannia is not like a public person. You clearly, when you're used, sort of monikers and anonymous names on the internet, you're not welcoming people to start digging through your personal information and trying to tie you to all of your different accounts. That's when it actually becomes doxing. But Rachel thinks that basically uh, everyone should be treated the way she gets treated, which she gets treated the way she does for massive amounts of money because she's a public journalist. But you don't get to then apply that to people who just want to live their lives and work their, uh, their sort of small-time jobs uh, where they're not looking for, you know, Antifa people to be calling their workplace saying they're a white supremacist.
2: Right. And um, if I'm reading your story correctly, did uh, Brattany at one time, did she ha- she call the police because Antifa was calling her workplace?
7: Did she call the yeah, police? Yeah, it would be a harassment thing. I, from talking to Brittany, it's not that they were like, you know, showing up, you know, and trying to attack her. It was that they were calling her constantly harassing. Uh, people she knew and her workplace in order to try and get her, her fired. I've actually even had this ha- in the past happen to me where I had a guy like make crazy phone calls, accusing me of like stealing his work. and I wasn't. And then he would just start calling my like uh, my place of work and people I knew trying to get me fired from my job or at least canceled or something like that. And that's a fine time to call the police uh, when someone's actually actively trying to like uh, infringe on your like ability to work. But yeah, like that, it, it actually did get serious enough to the point where Bratney's livelihood was threatened. And like, as I said in the previous part of the segment, that she legitimately has—she's a single mother of three. That she, if she loses that job, it's not at all good for her.
2: Of course, of course not. Have things? Uh, I haven't followed the latest between Bratney and Rachel Gilmore. Have things kind of settled down? Have they? Have they resolved this at all, or is this continuing this back and forth on <laughs> social? Media?
7: Well, the article, whatnot. But the funny thing is, in this exact same breath, she attacked the fact.
2: Oh, well, you're cutting that out on By one. saying, "I just." Sorry, Wyatt, you're cutting out. I'm only getting every third or fourth word here, so we're going to have to uh, to let you go. But thank you for this again, oh, no uh, Wyatt Claypool, senior contributor with the National Telegraph, the NationalTelegraph dot com, and you can read the uh, the story right there on the the online edition. All right, when we come back. Woke silliness is turning Ontario public schools into a joke. Ain't that the truth? We'll speak with Michael. I'll speak with what's with the royal we? Uh, I will speak with Michael Zwagstra. He's a public high school teacher and a strong proponent of raising academic standards and recently penned a piece for the Epoch Times on this very subject. Back with that discussion right after these.
4: Just having a little chin wag on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM.
2: Welcome back. Earlier in the program, and I don't know if you uh, caught the uh, interview, my discussion with Rebel News Tamara Ugolini, we were talking about the uh, Ministry of Education giving each Ontario school board tens of thousands of dollars. Now, keep in mind, there are 72 school boards across the province, so that adds up to anywhere from two and a half to almost $4 million. Uh, they're using that money basically to groom your children as young as the grade four. What is that, eight, nine years old? Imagine, imagine using our tax dollars to groom our children. And uh, this was an email that was sent out by or I guess on behalf of Patrick Case, he is the Assistant Deputy Minister and Education Equity Secretariat. Secretariat. Sounds like the Politburo. Education Equity Secretariat. And uh, this money that was doled out to 72 school boards was to conduct a a survey, an identity-based census, where they ask your children totally inappropriate questions about Gender identity? Are you a pansexual? Imagine someone asking your four, your your, uh, your fourth grader that. Again, if that happened uh, in any other context, you found out about it, you'd walk over there and you'd punch that person in the face, and rightly so. It's grooming. It's despicable. But this is what's going on in our school board, in our in our province, rather in our public schools, and this has caught the attention not only of people here in Ontario, but way over in Manitoba. They're standing up and taking notice. Michael Swagstra is a um, Manitoba public high school teacher. He's a strong proponent of raising academic standards, a senior fellow with the Frontier Center for Public Policy and author of A Sage on the Stage, Common Sense Reflections on Teaching and Learning. Penned a piece recently for the Epoch Times. Michael, welcome to the program. How are you?
3: Oh, very good. Thank you very much for having me.
2: My pleasure, my pleasure. Uh, so you're you're over in Manitoba, and and uh, obviously you're getting the news of what's going on in our public schools. Someone might say to you, Michael, you don't have a skin in this game. You know, mind your own business. You're in Manitoba. We're in Ontario. <laughs> why why are you writing about what's going on in Ontario?
3: Well, the reality is, is that Ontario is the uh, biggest province, and it's the a province that. Uh tends to set the trend for what happens in the rest of the country. Um, Our uh, media tends to be very Toronto centric, Ontario centric. And so uh, when things happen in Toronto, it invariably has an impact on the rest of the country. And so uh, it's important that we all take notice.
2: Absolutely. I agree with you. And uh, I'm glad you have taken notice and and, uh, you wrote this piece for the Epoch Times. Again, woke silliness turning Ontario public schools into a joke. Um, let me get your, you just your, your, your thoughts on what is happening in this specific example, this, this survey of uh, children uh, in grade four, as young as grade four being asked about their gender identity and their, their sexual, um, I don't know, preferences. Are you a pansexual? Are you a lesbian? Uh, you know, do you, uh, are you familiar with breast binding and, and packing and tucking and all of this nonsense?
3: Well, when I, uh, when I heard about this, I mean, it was just, uh, it just seems like a poor use of resources for a school board to be creating a, a survey of this sort and gathering this type of information. And as I note in the article, and as you've pointed out, these are, uh, these are young students. We're not even talking uh, high school here. We're talking uh, middle school age and even a little bit younger. And when I think of what a school board should be doing with its time, it should be looking at how could we improve academic instruction, How can we make sure that everyone learns how to read? Because if we're serious about social justice and about promoting equality uh, and equity and all those sorts of things, then we should be ensuring that everyone uh, has basic knowledge and skills. And uh, surveys like this don't contribute to that. What they do is they divide communities. uh, They spark controversy, just as this is done. And uh, I just don't think it's helpful to in the education system.
2: Right. And as you rightfully point out in your article, uh, let's I mean, let's look at the outcomes here in Ontario. And they are just cratering.
3: Well, we certainly are seeing declining results, both on the uh, PISA, the Program for International Student Assessment, and on the PCAP, uh, which is another which is a Canadian standardized testing that happens every few years. And uh, it's, it's a downward trend, particularly in areas such as uh, such as math and reading. And uh, as I noted in the article as well, the, this has even caught the attention of the Ontario Human Rights Commission, uh, which uh, did a whole analysis of the reading instruction programs which are used in Ontario and which is very similar to the curriculum in the rest of the country. Again, Ontario, you know, the trend is, uh, is, pretty, is pretty consistent. And uh, we have this basically this whole language approach uh the this you know this this approach to teaching reading that just doesn't work that well also goes by the name balanced literacy and the three queuing approach. And these are approaches that just aren't very good at teaching kids uh to read. And uh the report says this is a matter of human rights because The kids who suffer the most from poor reading instruction in school are the kids who come from poor homes, the kids who don't have parents who can afford private tutors and private schools and all of that. And so it is just very frustrating when schools are getting distracted with all these other types of things uh, and they're not focusing on their core mandate, which is academic instruction.
2: Absolutely. All right, Michael, we'll take a quick time out. I want to come back and and discuss further. Michael Zwagstra is a high school, a public high school teacher in Manitoba and a senior fellow with the Frontier Center for Public Policy. Back with more of our conversation in three minutes.
4: Let's rejoin the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk Saga 960 AM. Welcome back. The uh, Monty Python
2: Circus That is our public school system here in Ontario has caught the attention of a Manitoba high school teacher and also a senior fellow with the Frontier Center for Public Policy, Michael Zwagstra, also the author of A Sage on the Stage, Common Sense Reflections on Teaching and Learning. And as bad as it is here in Ontario, I think, you know, the um, perhaps the most woke of all the uh, provinces in Canada, uh, there is one particular school board uh, that you also write about, and that would be the Waterloo Region District School Board.
0: is running out this message is paid for by lines for fair and equitable policy
2: uh which is just a complete laughing stock well i guess we'd have to also con- include uh halton region in there <laughs> maybe that maybe halton uh they're one two anyway let's talk about waterloo waterloo region uh, district school board and um um just for those not familiar with it, what happened to teacher carolyn broski uh if you want to uh remind my listeners
3: well, sure. And, and you're right, Richard, it is a very tough competition for the WOCUS school board in Ontario. You've got some real contenders there, but I would put Waterloo at the top at the moment. Uh, basically, what happened was that uh, last year, the uh, district had decided that they were going to uh, engage in the ultimate make work program of evaluating every single book in their school libraries for any signs of bias. And so what happened was that a teacher, uh, Carolyn Brojowski, uh identified a couple of books in elementary school libraries that had content that she was concerned about, that she believed was sexualized material that shouldn't be available to, uh, to young students. And so during, during the public school board meeting, she identified some examples from these books and was reading from them. The school board chair cut her off, uh, told her she was violating the Ontario Human Rights Code, um, ended her presentation. And then basically proceeded to slander her afterwards describing her presentation as, as transphobic. And as a result, she was put on leave and eventually uh, uh, felt forced to resign from her position. And uh, it's just ridiculous. I mean, it the, was the school board themselves that initiated this process of let's examine all the books in the library. And then one of their own teachers takes them up on it and she ends up losing her job because of the fact that she identifies concerns with some of the books that they were looking at.
2: Right and then they censored uh basically kicked him out of the the, uh, the school board meetings They're the only black school board trustee uh because he he didn't have the right views he was censored basically
3: Well absolutely that's Mike Ramsey and yes. uh, uh, he he spoke up in her defense and 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 uh, publicly expressed that afterwards and the woke majority of the school board at that time voted to uh put him on suspension and kicked him out of being able to attend board meetings for months and and you're right. He was the only, at the time he was the only black school board trustee. So just a just a weird, weird situation. But uh, uh, that's what was going on in the in the Waterloo District School Board.
2: Right. And so, as we mentioned earlier, Halton District School Board perhaps takes the prize, maybe maybe the silver medal. But this is truly bizarre because um, it's almost as if for a while we were thinking that um, the. Um, the teacher that's wearing the novelty sized uh, size Z prosthetic breasts with complete with inappropriate protruding nipples in woodworking class. Uh, I mean, again, that's not a Monty Python skit. That's actually happening. Um, the, the, The school board almost seemed as if they were being hoist on their own petard because they are so incredibly woke that they can't bring themselves to do anything about this spectacle and there was some speculation that maybe this individual, and we really don't know the motive yet, maybe was doing this um, as a way of getting back at the school board. That's speculation at this point, but it's it's you know, it's been widely um, speculated. Uh, what are your thoughts on what's happening in, in, in Halton?
3: Well, when it, when my thoughts were when I saw those pictures of that teacher and how that teacher was dressed, uh, I thought it was a parody at first. I was thinking that there's no way that this is possibly a real situation of course, we found out later that, uh, that this was a real situation. And uh, instead of doing the proper thing and dealing with the problem and saying, look, uh, we do have standards for our teachers. We expect teachers to dress professionally at work and uh, wearing these giant prosthetic breasts is clearly not uh, part of professional attire. Uh, instead they issued a statement saying they stand by the teacher. And uh, and then after trying to look into the question of a teacher dress code, they said, no, we actually, their director of education said, it would just expose us to too much legal liability if we tried to implement any kind of dress code at all for staff. And just bizarre. I mean, I, I don't think McDonald's or Walmart would allow their employees to, uh, uh, to dress that way, uh, nor would most other workplaces. And the teachers teach children. I mean, this is you're supposed to model professionalism. Uh, it, it's, uh, I mean, I personally, when I'm in the classroom, I still i still wear a shirt and tie. I mean, I guess I'm just old fashioned that way. But if you, if you don't want to wear a shirt and tie, at least dress somewhat professionally. This is what uh, is just so bizarre about the situation. It's just a simple matter of, you know, do we have standards or not for how teachers dress at school? And that's really how they should have looked at it instead of turning this into whole different issue here where uh, where we really didn't need to go.
2: Is this an
3: uh, an aberration or is this
2: wokeness happening in in your province in Manitoba?
3: Well, it's happening. uh, It's happening to various degrees throughout the country. And uh, the the Ontario examples uh, tend to be the most egregious. I mean, uh, the the, the teacher dressing that way in the Halton uh, District School Board, that's obviously an extreme example. Um, but as a case in point, the uh, the survey that had been administered in the Toronto District School Board, uh, Edmonton's public school board had a similar survey, and uh, there's other school boards, I know there's other school boards in Ontario, obviously, that are being funded to do these surveys, and so it is happening elsewhere. Although I will say the Ontario examples. Are the ones that are the most extreme. I mean, for for pure governance dysfunction, I have to give I have to give the medal to the Waterloo District School Board. I mean, that's that's some impressive dysfunction they've got going as far as a governance level. Uh, and then I just add to it all that for all this time they're doing virtual meetings. I mean, like good grief, people! I mean, everyone else is meeting in person, and and throughout the almost the entire year they've still been meeting entirely virtually which, of course, virtual meetings tend to make for lousy meetings in the first place. And so that just made the whole dynamics even worse than it was before.
2: Right. And and parents are being shut out of the process. If In some instances, they have to submit their questions in advance and then it's done over Zoom and maybe they'll answer their questions. Maybe they won't. Uh, it's almost as if the school trustees think like, They're in charge. You know, I mean, we have agency. We're in charge. We're supposed to be in charge. How did things get turned upside down this way?
3: Well, there's a lot of factors behind it, but uh, one of them is that you end up with people running for the school board that are using it as a political stepping stone to uh, to other elected office and in so many cases uh, being a school board trustee seems to be training ground running for the NDP at the provincial or federal level and uh, w- w- when you're sort of, when you've got your eye that way, when you view being a trustee as a political role where you're mainly promoting social justice and equity, well you're, you're not going to be thinking about basic education a whole lot I mean, look what just happened with the Ottawa Carleton District School Board the, the several weeks wasted debating a useless proposed mass mandate, you know, driven by one school trustee whose entire mission in life on the school board seems to be to make everyone wear masks. Even though the province hasn't had a mask mandate for many months, and where is the discussion about education in that? In terms of students learning, I mean, think of all the time that was wasted in that debate. And I know that Hamilton school school trustees they just voted for a toothless mask mandate. I mean, how much time is being wasted on that and not being fo- not focusing on uh, on academic basics? But a lot of it comes down to the quality of people who choose to run for school boards, and when they're using it as a political stepping stone, and and then we, we see some really bad decisions happening
2: right and and so many school trustees uh get re-elected by acclamation they're running unopposed nobody votes for them nobody pays attention ultimately it's we're to blame because when we're asleep at the switch we're not uh we're, you know this is this is where the rubber meets the road is the school that was is the school board this is where change really happens this is these are the radical elements that are basically uh Dramatically changing the culture and uh, we, we we must pay more attention, but we don't. And it's it, this, you know, I, w- I had some hope that maybe we had hit bottom here in Ontario and that the last municipal election things would change. But if anything, they got worse. I'm, I'm sad to report, Michael.
3: Yeah there there's plenty of room to go down yet unfortunately and uh I it's I do hope people pay more attention to uh to school board elections it is important uh trustees do play a, a key role and there are lots of good trustees out there there are it's just that the ones who uh, who get who get all the media attention and all the controversy are the ones who are pushing this kind of stuff, uh, which is obviously not helpful. And it's not helpful for the school system in general. I mean, schools are supposed to be about educating kids, not about getting into fights about uh, various social justice issues.
2: How do we get a copy of a Sage on the Stage: Common Sense Reflections on Teaching and Learning?
3: Simplest way would be used to go to Amazon.ca and just type in a Sage on the Stage. It'll pop right up, and you can get a copy.
2: Michael, thank you so much for this. I hope we'll speak again.
3: Thanks very much, Richard. Have a good day.
2: You too. All right. One more item before uh, I say so long. I just want to remind you, the Steelheads heading down the QEW, which begs the question, are we going to rename it the KCW, King Charles Way? Just a quick aside. Anyway, back to the Steelheads. They're taking on the Hamilton Bulldogs tonight. In Hamilton, Matt Cullen and Mike Caraphilitis. We'll be here, right here on Saga 960, calling all the action starting at 7 p.m. Don't miss it. All right, that's it for me. My thanks to Jody, Declan, and Jacob. Get well, Declan. I'll be back tomorrow to do it all over again, God willing. I'll speak with you at 4. Don't be late. Until then, I remain unbowed, unbent, unbroken.